neglected and our children may be dismissed with our volunteers in the back to Children's Church. Uh, and it's my privilege this morning to introduce and welcome uh, to the pulpit Matt Bowling, a pastor in our denomination and uh, a coach that I met walking around a lake in Colorado on a pastor's retreat. And he kept challenging me. Every, he wasn't affirming me. He kept challenging me with things. And I was quite put off by that until I saw how helpful it was. And then I realized he was a coach to pastors too and thought, well, he can be my coach. And uh, I hope in the Lord's grace he'll be a little bit of a coach to you as well this morning. Thanks, Matt. There's a clock here. Does that matter? Oh, to you. Well, you didn't tell me what it was supposed to mean to me, so we'll just have to figure it out. Um, it's great to be with you. Um, I get this great privilege, not only of coaching pastors, but being able to preach occasionally in places that I go, uh, help with the Lord's Supper, as I'll do this morning, and it really, um, now, being a weekly preacher uh, in a church um, has some, some great things about it, and it has some tough things about it. Um, one of the tough things is that you don't get to stand in front of people and tell them the word of grace quite as much as I used to be able to. And so it really is, friends, my privilege to be with you. Uh, we're going to look a little bit this morning uh, in First Thessalonians. Um, maybe? Eh, I'm not sure we got it up on the screen. That was my fault. So um, I'm going to read this uh, and then pray and, uh, and we'll jump in. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you, declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Uh, so in the church that I led in Seattle, at this point, I would say, this is the word of the Lord, and you would say, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you don't want us to be uninformed. You don't want us to grieve without hope but to grieve with hope, to have hope, to enjoy hope, to give hope away. Help us to be those kind of people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This um, text felt helpful to Jeff and I as we were wrestling through kind of what I would preach when I came, um, because if anything has happened in COVID, it's that we've experienced significant grief. Not necessarily a grief like the death of a close relative or a dear friend, um, to be sure, unless they were the ones um, who died of COVID. But even for those of us that have not ex experienced that level kind of grief, it has been grief nonetheless. Uh, the way that I put it recently in an email list that Jeff and I are on um, is, uh, is this sentiment from me, someone who strives and desires control. The world changed, and no one asked me first. Um, 
So much so that my wife and I, we lived in Seattle for 13 years, and it was bad enough in Seattle um, in COVID that, that we just moved. Nearly all that we loved, we had loved, was lost. Uh, throughout this sermon, I want us to consider a couple of questions together. Why do we grieve? Uh, there are more and more obvious answers to this and less obvious, and we'll try and explore both of them. And then how to a second question that I want us to consider together as we move through the sermon is, how do we move forward with hope? How do we regain the emotional energy that we need to pursue the Great Commission as individuals to your real neighbors you're called to love, where you live, work, and play? And as a church, how do we have the emotional energy to pursue the Great Commission? The sort of situation that we're in in, in, in COVID, which is, is it ending? Are we in the middle of it? Are we at the end of it? Um, I'll fly home on a plane today and wear a mask. I'm really hoping we're getting closer to the end of that. The sort of situation that we're in, in COVID, whatever era we are in of it, um, can feel hopeless rather easily, as though uh, we're stuck in a cul-de-sac of sadness with no route out. But the Lord does give us a route out that is hopeful, as we're going to see. Even in our circumstances, we find it right now. We can find gospel encouragement and hope if we look. Um, there's a quiz show on, uh, on NPR, and typically you hear it on Saturday mornings, and um, there's a category in the quiz show uh, that goes like this. Um, things you should have learned in school. Anybody know how this finishes? Things, how, things that you learned in school had you been paying attention. And might the Lord be trying to say to us, there's hope that's here if you're willing to pay attention. But to get to that hope that's deep, it's well-founded, it's solid and secure, we must find that hope where we are, which is in the valley of the shadow of death. That's what I want to wrestle through with you today. It's, it's where the Thessalonians found themselves. It's where we find ourselves. And that's why, for your sanity, for my sanity, and to remain in touch with actual reality, you and I first must, if you're a note taker, point one, give a place to grief. That's the first thing that we need to do. Now, I know you're not in the middle of Thessalonians. You're in the middle of Philippians, I think. Um, so let me just give you the 30-second introduction to Thessalonians. Um, the best that we can tell, this was Paul's first letter that he wrote to a church. It was around maybe 50 AD, something like that, 17 years after Jesus died. It was mainly occasion for the purpose, actually, of this text, of trying to help the people in Thessalonica wrestle with, well, with their grief, that Christians had died and they were unsure what their status was and what their relationship was with Christians who had died. It's what they were, grapp they were grappling with, grief. And, and an undue grief, an, an inappropriate grief. Not that grief is inappropriate, but the manner of their grief was inappropriate, as we'll see. So what was their current situation? Look with me at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to lack the right information, brothers, sisters, about those who are asleep. Uh, this was a, way, a common way in the ancient world to just talk about people who had passed away. 
that they were asleep. Why does he not want them to be uninformed? So that you may not, this is God's desire expressed through Paul, so that you may not grieve as others do. So there's a contrast here, right? There's a grief that others do, and there's a grief that's appropriate to Christians, right? So who's the group, the group that, is, that is others? This is people who do not know Christ. We'll talk about them a little bit more later. This whole thing to see here is that true Christians actually grieve. The point here is not so that you may not grieve, but that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. True Christians are the ones who can squarely face a many times painful world and grieve at the right times. This is not a popular thing in the U.S., though. This culturally, we don't, we don't do this. Um, again, note that this doesn't say, though we would prefer it, that you may not grieve, full stop, period. That's not what it says, does it? says that you may not grieve as others do. You see, if you didn't grieve, you wouldn't be following the steps of your Savior. Remember what's prophesied in Isaiah 53.3, that Jesus would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Remember, it's Jesus who wept profusely at the tomb of Lazarus in John 11.33 and following. Now, it is likely the case that big displays of emotion like we find in other world cultures could be Odd to you. Our culture, all cultural value related to grief comes out in phrases like this. Uh, we value holding it together. Never let them see you sweat. Right? That's the way that we deal with strong emotions in, in our culture. Those are our cultural values. And it may be the case that we don't even know how to handle strong emotions. Uh, typically because, at least for me at least, and maybe for you, I'm guessing it is, to the, sh- the kind of shaping that we received in our family of origin. The only strong emotion that happened in my household growing up was anger, but nothing else. And so some of us, we, the elders and I were talking about this yesterday, some of us, because we don't know how to handle strong emotions, we just, we just cut ourselves off from them. Keep them out there, away from us. Act like they're not true or real. But friends, that's a death of its own. That's a death of its own. To cut ourselves off from strong emotion. There's two reasons for this. That's a death of its own. You were made for emotion. All you have to do is read through the scriptures and you can see that God has many and varied uh, emotions. And in his image, so ought we. To reflect God's image well to a watching world, you must embrace emotion. High, low, neutral. Uh, Remember this, just to encourage you to embrace emotion. In Romans 12.1, the entirety of the Christian life is hung. It's hung on first an emotional response to the mercy of God. That's what Paul appeals to. He appeals to your sense of gratitude for the mercy of God. And everything else in Romans, all of the do in Romans, in response to the done of what's done in Christ, is hung 
on an emotion of gratitude. Even the Heidelberg Catechism that we confessed this morning, that we'll, we'll do another part of it a little bit later, the whole structure of it, broadly speaking, of the, the Heidelberg Catechism is guilt, grace, anybody know? Gratitude that leads to goodness. We can't avoid emotion. We have to embrace it. This is super important when we think about grief. Um, whether you like it or not, unchosen but unprocessed grief sits as a madism, sits as a debt on your emotional budget. For those of you that, that have debts, when you get whatever your pay is, the first bit of your pay goes what? It goes to pay the debt. And what you have left in the money that you received, right, goes to everything else. Well, if you wake up in the morning, like I think is typical for many of us in COVID, and we go, ugh, I don't have the emotional energy to do anything. Ugh, another day. What you're experiencing is that you have a debt on your emotional budget because of the grief that we're all experiencing because of COVID. And so we need to learn how to process our grief, how to move through it and then beyond it. So that's one reason. You're made, you're made for emotion, right? You're made for emotion. Second reason why this is so important. Your body will keep the score. Um, this, uh, I'm, as I wear this particular outfit this morning, I'm reminded of another NPRism. It's NPR day. Um, there, uh, anybody remember the um, show that used to be on Saturday mornings, the Click and Clack, the Tappet Brothers, the guys that repaired cars, right? Anyways, more laughs there than any human should ever enjoy. Um, but at the end of it, at the credits, um, there was a particular name for a guy that they had who's, um, who's it, part of it, I should have looked it back up this morning because I was thinking about using this, but um, part of the name for this guy, and they're all made up names, they're, not, they're, they're, they're all like nicknames and whatever, um, but part of this one guy's name is that he was not a slave to fashion, right? You remember that? You can go look it up. There's actually a great interview with the guy who's the producer of it. So this is not, this is indeed that I am not a slave to fashion, this particular fashion style here. Uh, but there is a reason why I do this. It's because I can't, I can't have anything on my wrist and my hand right here ever because I've had shingles twice. And I have uh, damage in my shoulder and I have nerve damage right here. Um, my body's kept the score. And so will yours. If you refuse to feel and process your grief. Uh, this is the reason why Americans have increased levels of anxiety and depression. You, you may want to desperately avoid reality. And believe me, I understand. I moved. Okay? I get it. But we also can't. I, I think that COVID exposed in Americans that suddenly we found something that our wealth was insufficient to shield us from. And most of the time, our wealth can shield us from the hardness of the world. A grief is real. And if you won't face it head on, if you won't give a place to it, it's still going to have its effects on you. But what you'll lose out on is that it doesn't become profitable to you or to anybody else. It'll just affect you. 
Uh, we're encouraged here, not just here, but in the whole scriptures, to live in reality, to squarely face the grief that we are sharing in a broken world, and particularly at this time. But I recognize, friends, that although not facing grief is, is, is unhelpful, it'll mess you up. It's not the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing that can happen is to face grief without hope. It's to be externally or internally wailing with no salve in sight. And that, Paul tells us, God tells us through Paul, is the plight of many, perhaps even most of the people that you know, that you live, work, and play with. This is why, if you're a note taker, you should secondly mourn that some don't have hope. Look again at verse 13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve. And then finish the verse, as others do who have no hope. You see, if you were uninformed, you could grieve without hope. But who are those people that don't have hope? Who are these others? Paul writes to these Thessalonians because they were acting like pagans with regard to grief. They were mourning hopelessly. And of course, recognize that pagans have to mourn hopelessly. Um, one of my seminary professors has helpfully put it this way. Uh, he says that there are two competing worldviews. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans 1. But there's two competing worldviews. There's a worldview uh, that we might call twoism, right, where there are two entities in reality. There's God and the, there's the world that he made. So there's two. Twoism, God in the world that he's made. Most of the people around you that you know don't functionally believe in that. They believe that there's just one thing, one entity in reality, what we would call creation or the world that God's made. Pagans believing that there's only one entity, again, the default worldview of the, the, most of the Americans that you know, what that means is that they, and Jesus puts his finger on this, in Matthew 6, talking about the pagans and why they have worry and anxiety. And it's because they don't have a father. And see, this is why people talk so much uh, about fate or luck or the universe being against you. But fate or the universe might be against you. But no one, nothing is for you. But maybe fate's evil twin, luck. Who loves you? Maybe. Eh, maybe not. Like a five-year-old plucking a daisy's petals. With no cohesive narrative, with no beginning, middle, or end point, no loving father, there can be no relief for pagans in grief. Do we need more explanation for the incredibly increased rates of depression and anxiety that have come about during COVID? I was on a flight. I ended up flying a lot for my job. I was on a flight last week, and uh, I witnessed an interaction between two flight attendants, and uh, a young, um, young male flight attendant interacting with a, an older female flight attendant. And they were talking about what they were going to do on the weekend. And the younger flight attendant said, you know, told what his plans were, and he goes, he goes, YOLO, which if you're my age or older, you might not know what that means. Um, it means you only live once. 
in older cultural phrases, there was the, uh, some of you remember the soap opera, maybe it's still on, I should check and see if it is, but there was a soap opera on at one time that was called uh, One Life to Live. Even earlier than that, we had phrases, even in my lifetime though, you only go around once, so you better get as much as you can the first time. You see, if you believed that, and if we're honest, too many of us functionally believe that in the way that we live and dream and plan and spend and think and structure our lives. Isn't that sadly true? If you believe that, you would be radically grieving as well. Because COVID would stand in the way of the one chance you thought you had for happiness. And you would be mad. Uh, This came out in the news. It was fascinating and heart-wrenching at the same time that there were people who were mad at Christians because we were not as desperate as others to prolong the one life we had to live on earth. So people did see that Christians believe something different. I'm not sure it was as helpful, though, as it could have been. Hopefully it'll be more helpful after we get done today. Now, maybe as you look at this today, you look at what's being said here and you go, oh, that's me. Functionally, I don't, I don't have any hope. And if that's the case, you're listening to this in the live stream or you're here this morning, um, <laughs> this is your lucky day. For on this day, I pray that you hear about a father who loves people like you and me, warts and all. A father who sent a son from heaven so we could have real hope. You see, Christians, like all humans, have reason to grieve. We live in a gruesome place. But we have the freedom to grieve with hope. And especially even this group of Christians, given God's recent providence in the area of COVID and all its effects, including on this congregation. There's actually a wonderful opportunity for speaking thoughtfully about Christ to those who don't yet know Him. That's wrapped up in this. We'll get there, I promise. So let's please realize, maturing Christians, that it is a Christian privilege to third, grieve with hope. Now, our circumstance that we're living is not a duplicate of what was going on in Thessalonians. I'm not trying to say that. They were concerned about Christians that had died. Uh, We're concerned with a church that's hurting, with a congregation that's hurting. Everywhere I go, congregations are hurting. COVID's just plain hard. There's the rare church that I go to that is not smaller than it was before COVID. And I know yours is too. Some faces are no longer here. And when we consider uh, the place of churches in the culture, of, the, of tourism as a cultural worldview, the world's shifted. And we're no longer at the center of culture. And it does feel like a death of sorts. It certainly does to me. It's had me grieving for months, and I, I suspect it will for much time to come.
Though our circumstances are not exactly the same, we can derive the same hope that God wanted to give to the Thessalonians through Paul's writing. Let's look here, verse 14. How is it that we can grieve, not grieve, as others who don't have any hope? Look at verse 14. For since we believe, and we'll think about who that group is in just a second, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with them those who have fallen asleep. So their fear, the Thessalonians' fear was, these people died and we're never going to see them again. And what God was trying to say through Paul is, no, 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 no. The people of God will be fully reunited in the new heavens and the new earth. You don't need to worry about that. It's going to be awesome. Promise. Where's our hope here? Even so through Jesus. You see, the Sunday school answer in this particular case is correct. It's Jesus. But with depth reverence, and clarity. That is the right answer. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. How does Jesus' death and resurrection give us hope? Whether you're one of these who we believe or you're one of those ones who came in today or listened to the live stream and you say, that I'm one of those others who don't have hope. How, how can this word about Jesus, the word of grace, the gospel, how can it give you hope? Well, you see that the gospel is, Jesus calls it, the gospel of the kingdom. It's spoken by a king, Jesus. What's the disposition? What's the attitude? What's the intention, the motivation of King Jesus? Here's what it is. This word of the gospel is spoken by a king determined to take a people and a world that he made very good, that became very broken, and to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. That's who speaks the word of the gospel. Is the king who made from nothing everything with words, upholds it, Hebrews tells us, with words. Colossians tells us that the world coheres in Jesus. That king is the one who comes and visits us. He comes and visits us in our grief. In the midst of the broken world, Jesus visits us. You see, when we grieve, we're experiencing that Humpty Dumpty is broken. We're experiencing um, the way that, that I like to put it uh, when I minister at funerals is that many times I'll just validate what people are thinking and feeling, which is, we hesitate to say this because it feels kind of like we're, we're being unkind to God, accusing him of doing bad. You know, I, there's lots of reasons why we hesitate to say this, but it's the most true thing that's ever been said when I'm about to say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. That is true. This is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way that it was in Eden. It is not the way it'll be in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the most true emotion you've ever felt. Or the most true thing you've ever said. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus comes into the middle of that to give us hope. 
That's why we grieve, friends, no matter its intensity. Uh, this week, I'll just uh, I'll give you a couple of my, my griefs. Um, I mistimed the HRBT, duh, newbie, and was late to dinner. That's a disappointment. That's a slight grief. Um, my family grieved. One of the reasons that we left Seattle uh, was that we were not able to be in the physical presence of our church family but once between March 2020 and when we moved on July 1st this year. Once. That was griefsome. My wife and I had a favorite place to go listen to music. Every time I was in town on Tuesday night, we'd go to this place and listen to music. <whistles> Gone. That's a grief. Typically, the hardest death, that of our spouse or child, um, particularly untimely from our perspective. Hard grief. But in all of those, what are we feeling? What are we sensing? Things are indeed not the way they're supposed to be. The, the hope that Jesus came to put things back right again, to turn back all that is wrong. Uh, Sam Gamgee and um, Lord of the Rings, to make all that is sad come untrue. That's why Jesus comes. This is what Jesus' resurrection is meant to communicate to you. It's the first fruits of what's to come. That's why Paul points back at it. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, like that's he hangs all of it on that. See, now, even now, God can give you hope if you've been giving your heart to something that is not God. You've given your heart to fate or to luck or to wishes or thoughts. You've given your heart to substances or goals or love only to have your heart broken, and now you're hopeless. How? How does God give us hope? He says, come back. Come back to me. The gospel is a summons from that king who's come in person to put things back right. It's a summons to do two things. Um, to repent. <gasps> he used the R word. Um, and believe. That's the, the basic summons of the gospel is repent and believe. Well, what are we doing when we say that we repent? Well, see, over here, what we've decided in our pride the pride of our hearts as creatures is to say, I, I can take care of this. I can get her done. And when we repent, we go, hmm, all of my efforts to try and fix my own life have failed. Do you realize that's why you sin? It's your effort to fix your own life. No matter what it is, that's what you're doing when you sin. To repent, whether it's a whole life, whether it's the first time you're just beginning a walk of repentance and faith, is to turn from all of this effort to functionally save yourself, right? And instead, you come to Jesus and you go, my only hope is in you. Receive me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I need you. I need you living for me because I've lived lousy. I need you dying for me because I've lived lousy. I need you rising for me so that I have real hope. I need you sending for me to pray, as we thought about earlier, the Father's right hand for me. I need you, Jesus. That's the summons of the gospel. 
from a gracious king to begin a daily walk of repentance and faith. To turn from what you thought could satisfy you but never can to him who made you. You coming and trusting in him. Trusting in him because of Jesus. Now, this is where the Sunday school answer of Jesus is so important. Notice where Paul sends us. He sends you to gospel basics for hope in the face of grief. Now, maybe you're in the place where I've been at various times in my Christian life where you're kind of jaded and cynical. You're like, yeah, 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 Jesus. Yeah, 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 death, resurrection. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've got real pain, though. How, how did, why would that possibly help me? And you could gloss right over this and not sense its depth, and that would be a mistake. And actually, it would cut you off from hope. See, if you're receiving and resting in Jesus for hope, you can truly grieve, but with hope. With hope now. There's two reasons for that. First, this isn't all that will be. Um, You only live once is a lie. Actually, it's a lie for everybody. It'll just be a sadness for those who aren't trusting in Christ when they come to realize it. Because they'll live twice too. It just won't be good. This is not all that will be. Uh, We confess in the Nicene Creed, and I hope you're not lying when you confess this, but instead it's true and real and deep to you. I look to the life of the world to come. Do you look forward to the new heavens and the new earth? Do you know that all of your dreams will be realized there? All the holy ones at least. You see, there's only a couple of things that you can't do in the new heavens and the new earth. You can't sin. That'll be good for all of us, me included. It doesn't appear that there will be new marriages or new children. If you have one chance now, if you're unable to have children, there's the great opportunity to have spiritual children and to disciple others. There's one more thing that you can't do once you're in the new heavens and new earth. You can't help anybody get there. That, friends, is a privilege that exists only now. Do you actually functionally look to the life of the world to come? Can you save your bucket list knowing you'll get the opportunity to do it and 50 billion more of them then? Would you consider regaining hope now and living your life for the sake of those who don't know Christ now as the privilege of what you get the opportunity to do in this life? Second reason. First reason, you can have truly have hope. This isn't all that will be. Second reason, even now, you have much reason to hope because of the spiritual benefit that you have in Christ amidst your grief. Uh, I love Heidelberg Catechism 1, just fair warning. Um, It is the exception that I can make it through this whole question without my voice wavering or crying. So if you're uncomfortable by men crying, now is the time to just steal yourself. Because this is so glorious and wonderful that I rarely make it all the way through it. But here we go. This is Heidelberg Catechism question one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? 
Here we go. That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Friends, that's our, that's our comfort. This is what gives us hope now. Part of that being ready to live for Him is to anticipate, to be ready, to seek to create opportunities, to give true hope, the hope that hopefully we're regaining, to give the true hope away that we have to those around us who don't yet know that hope, who don't yet know Christ. That's the privilege that we have now, that this isn't all that there is, thankfully. You remember in 1 Peter 3.15, what it says there. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the... Oh, come on. You guys can't be that asleep yet. Jeff might be a boring preacher, but I rarely am. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the... For the hope that is in you. Isn't that striking? Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now this assumes, when God gives this, gives this to us through Peter, it assumes a couple of things. One is that you have hope. And two, that it's visible enough for people to ask you about it. You might, you might ask me, how do I get that kind of hope? It comes as we deeply reflect on the love of the Father and the heart of Jesus for us, his people, as we hear about it in the gospel. Have you ever thought about why Jesus ends up on earth at all? Why is he even there? You realize that Jesus didn't have to be born at all. He didn't have to come. The Father didn't have to send him. Jesus didn't have to die as though some outside force prevailed on him. No, these symbols of bread and wine on the table, as C.S. Lewis so well captured it in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is of a willing victim. One who gave himself up for us, for broken, wandering, emotionally wrought, People. Nothing constrained the Father and Son and Spirit except love and a fierce passion for grief to progress to hope now and for grief to be gone forever at Christ's second coming. Isaiah 35.10 invites us to imagine what it will be like in the new heavens and the new earth. 
And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And I love this. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Flee away. And in case you didn't get it the first time, you get it repeated in 5111. That's what we look forward to, friends. When Jesus returns, the sure bud that is Jesus' resurrection will come to full flower in the remaking of everything to be very good again with no mourning or tears or sorrow forever again. But only joy, pure and clean every day as much as you want. Would that be good? Doesn't the love of the Father, the good Father whose providence has brought us here, in this point in history, the love of the Father that's shown at the cross and the tomb, doesn't that love give you hope even in the midst of your grief? This is God's encouragement to us that we grieve with hope. Let's do that with prayer as we come to the table. Father, it's a mouthful it's a brainful, it's a heartful to move from only grief to grief with hope. Help us to see your heart, Father, to see Jesus that you came most willingly, you volunteered. Holy Spirit, we're dense. We continue to put our hopes in what you've made instead of in a father who loves us and who gave up his son for us. Impress these things on our hearts. Help us to grieve with hope and to have the kind of hope that's obvious that we get the opportunity, the privilege to give it away. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.